sing it. And we're supposed to sing with the understanding. We just sung it. Living by faith. I feel no alarm. Is that indeed the case? Tonight, we're going to talk about the one that we have faith in. I didn't pick that song, by the way, but it, it goes real well. As I was getting ready to walk up here, I thought, boy, that'd make a good introduction. There was an old illustration some years ago. Some of you are going to be too young to recognize it, while others of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with it and say, oh, that's right, I remember that. A number of years ago, there was a popular little graph, as it were, going around with some commercial slogans in it for different products. It was found on t-shirts and such, and it was the God is like series. And it had lines in it like, God is like Coca-Cola. He's the real thing. Remember that? Anybody remember that? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. Okay, I was thinking maybe it was a uh, geographic thing. Okay. There was another one, several of these lines that, that uh, used advertising slogans. God is like General Electric. He lights your path. God is like Bayer Aspirin. He works wonders. God is like Hallmark Cards. He cares enough to have sent the very best. I like this one. God is like Tide. He gets out the stains that others leave behind. God is like Alka-Seltzer. Try him. You'll like him. God is like Scotch tape. You can't see him, but you know he's there. And while, while it's true, and, and the Bible does confirm that it is true, that his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that he made, Romans 1 and verse 20, the fact of the matter actually is that according to the Bible, God is not like anything else ever. God is not like anything else anywhere Ever. You know how you go out and you try some new meat and people say, oh, it tastes like chicken, right? Everything tastes like chicken, okay? Chicken has a wide variety of tastes, apparently. But it, it, it's like something else. God isn't like anything else. That, that, that and, and as we consider this truth, and, and as we consider it over the next few sermons, by the way, in a little sermon mini-series, it's amazing how much that little truth can impact our lives or had ought to impact our lives that God isn't like anything else. There's, there's nothing like God. And so we're going to talk about this in, in as I said, a sermon mini-series over the next several sermons, probably three. And we're going to start by building a very 
biblical foundation, one text at a time, and then we're going to lead up to a, a very critical, very vital modern-day crescendo, a modern-day application for us of, of this foundation that we've built. Because this truth that God is not like anything else, that there's nothing else like God, has eternal life and death implications for us in ways we may not have even thought about. And so I want to encourage all of you to be here, all of you to be here online as we go throughout this little sermon mini-series that is entitled, And Man Said, Let Us Make God in Our Image According to Our Likeness. You may have thought you heard that wrong. You did not. And man said, let us make God in our image according to our likeness. The first thing, the most important thing to understand about this whole sermon series, the, the idea that is critical for us to establish in our hearts and minds, both for this sermon series as well as for our earthly worship and even our eternal lives, is this, there is absolutely nothing, no being, either on earth, under the earth, in the physical universe, or in the spiritual realms that is like God. There is nothing like God. Now, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the exact representation of his being. When I talk about God and there being nothing like God, I'm talking about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, the three, the great three in one. There is nothing that is like God. He, the Godhead, Romans 1.20 and Colossians 2 and verse 9, has no peer. He has no equal. None whatsoever. He is absolutely unlike anything or anyone else ever whether known or unknown, whether seen or not seen, whether created or eternal. Almighty God, this God who comes here to meet us in worship, this God whom we come here to worship, this God is completely, absolutely, and forever, utterly unique. He is without equal and without peer in his presence, in his power, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his wisdom, in his excellence, and in his existence, as well as every other facet of his being. The Bible over and over confirms this as, as great men of God wrote of this very thing that I've spent the last few minutes trying to tell you. God is, is unequaled to anything. There's nothing like him. Turn to me in your Bibles tonight to Isaiah 40. And as we go over some of these texts and we talk about the majesty of God and, and how he is not like anything that we've ever known, I want you to consider it as this God who came here and died for you. In Isaiah chapter 40, again, just have this idea in mind that we've talked about. Beginning at verse 12, look what Isaiah says. Isaiah 40 and verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? 
measured heaven with a span. Who, who is able to measure the vastness of the heavens with a measure? And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. I, I, you ever, ever sit in front of a window maybe on a sunny day the sun is, is just coming in really good. You see these little tiny bits of dust in the air, these little flecks. You've seen them? You know what I'm talking about? These little tiny, tiny flecks of dust just kind of floating in the air. God has calculated the amount of those little dust particles in the mountain ranges. That's who God is. Nobody else can do that. God's done it. That, that's Isaiah's message. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who, who's done that? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? All of us were taught by people. We were taught the gospel. We were taught mathematics. We were taught all of these things. We all had to be taught so many things. God knows everything and was taught nothing. He is without peer, without equal. With whom, verse 14, did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And obviously these are rhetorical questions to show the uniqueness of God. Behold, verse 15, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust. Here we go with that dust again. I say I like writing about those little tiny particles of dust, right? The nations are a drop in a bucket. They are counted as the small dust, not just dust, the little particles. Those ones, yeah, on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. God brings up the islands from the sea as if it were me standing here and picking up a dot of paper. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. All the nations, wait a minute, you mean some of these mighty superpowers that have come and gone with these, with these leaders and this armed might that crushed so many people and put so many people to death and, and even the mighty USA today, all nations before him are as nothing. Next to God, they're, they're nothing. He has no peer, he has no equal. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. And so it is at that point that God speaks through Isaiah and, and having established this, he says, to whom then, I'm sorry, Isaiah says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? And in the next two verses, he goes into the foolishness of some of these people and <clears throat> They're trying to, to fashion a likeness of God. They're trying to take something they do know to fashion a likeness of something they cannot possibly know. The depth and power of God's not like anything they could make. Have you, verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Haven't you understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, that is, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants, they're like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Wow. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely they shall be planted. Scarcely they shall be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. And he will blow on them. 
like a child with a, with a dead dandelion that's gone by and just those little in the wind, just. When he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Here's where God asked the question through Isaiah. To whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. See who's created these things. See who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the power, strength of his power, not one of these stars is missing. What an incredible God. What an incredible God. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God? Notice he's everlasting. Nothing else is everlasting. The earth is not everlasting. We're not everlasting. No creature that he created is everlasting, but he is. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is not like anything. He is so far above and beyond everything we can possibly know. In Isaiah 46, again he asks in verses 5, 8, and 9 of Isaiah 46, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? And I love that question from God, right? Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 5. He goes on to say, in verses 8 and 9, remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now, take us to a lot of places tonight to show us some Old Testament characters, and we'll see a new one as well, New Testament character as well who continually put this across, and I, and I hope you'll hold on to some of this for the, the punchline third in the series that we get to, but it's important to build this foundation. In Job, the book of Job, we all know what Job lost. We've heard sermons on it. We've gained great hope from the book of Job. I can't literally imagine what it would be like to go through what Job did. The loss of that many children all at once, all of his goods, everything. But I want you to consider what Job, after all of those earthly losses that we can't really even get our minds around, said, because he understood that there was nobody else on earth, above the earth, below the earth, except God himself, who could ever help to heal what had happened to him. He says in Job 5, verses 8 and 9, but as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. This world is rough. We all go through difficult things. We all incur losses. We all lose people and things that we wish that we had not. But again, probably impossible for us to fathom losing what Job did all at once as Job lost it. But even in that, Job knew that God was the one who could heal him and could help him and nobody else. 
And, and I want you to turn with me to Job 26. I want you to look at what Job says about the complete, absolute, utter uniqueness of God Almighty. In Job chapter 26, please turn there. And I believe that probably this is part of why Job, even in all of his losses, did not sin with his mouth, did not curse God and die as, as his wife told him to do because he understood the infinite power and uniqueness and ability of God to heal even him, the, the power of God and who God was. And we see that reflected here in chapter 26, beginning at verse 5. He said, the dead tremble. Who else can make the dead tremble? Stop, whoa, stop, think. Can, um, can armies that are on the earth make the dead tremble? No. Can the mightiest rulers that ever ruled any of the mightiest kingdoms of man that have ever arisen make the dead tremble? No, God can. God's not like anybody. Nobody else is like God. The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. All of it's wide open to God. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Oh, I, I, I was thinking about that as I read this and I was studying this. He hangs the, have you ever tried to hang up something on nothing? When you go home, you go home from church, take your church clothes, put them on a hanger, right? You go to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hang it right here. You know what's going to happen, right? If there's nothing there, it's going to fall. Nobody on this planet has the power to hang anything on nothing. God hung the earth on nothing. Nobody else could do anything like that. No, nobody else is like God. God is unique. God is, is all-powerful and all-infinite. He binds up the water, verse 8, in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. Think about that. He binds up the water in his thick clouds. The water's in the clouds, and yet the clouds don't break under it. You ever try to put water in your hand, and, and unless you're really good and really strong, the water's going to seep between your fingers, or at least it does mine. I can't even hold water in my hand, but God can put water in vaporous clouds and have them hold on to it without leaking until he wants them to. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the wa waters at the boundary of light and darkness. And consider this. Job is believed to be one of the oldest books in the Bible. Okay? <clears throat> Not necessarily uh, chronologically as it follows right up through after Esther and all of that. But even there, Job understood that the horizon was circular. The earth wasn't flat. The, the horizon was circular and that the light and the darkness changed each other around this circular horizon. And he said, God did that. Man, in his limited wisdom, couldn't even figure out the earth wasn't flat at that point, but he said, God, God did this with the circular horizon. The pillars of heaven tremble, and, the, and they are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. I love that line, his spirit adorned the heavens. You ever, you know, not too long ago, maybe most of us were putting in Christmas trees and it takes a while to adorn those, and especially that they're big and maybe hung some lights outside. Um, and it takes a while and ladders and preparation to hang those. I, I want you to look at what he said God did. He said, God adorned the heavens. He decorated those. And then the reason I, I take the time to read this lengthy reading is because 
all of these incredible things we've just talked about, verse 14 is the, is the kicker. He says, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job said, I haven't even scratched the surface. Well, that's a familiar phrase, right? I haven't even, I haven't even scratched the surface. This, this is just the peripheral, easy way out there stuff. We haven't even begun to get to who God really is in all of his power. This adorning the heavens and, and holding the water and his, all this stuff, that, he said, that's just the slightest whisper. The merest edge of his ways, verse 14. Later on, we would see his friend Elihu agree. In Job 36, if you'll turn there with me, look at verse 22. Not 32, 22. Getting tongue twisted here today. Job 36, beginning at verse 22. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or, or who has said, you have done wrong? You know, many years ago, when the United States and Russia, the two world superpowers at the time, were signing treaties, and they both agreed not to nuclear and all this stuff, right? Here, here's my thought. So the two greatest military superpowers on Earth are signing a treaty, and both of them agreeing that they're not going to do certain things. Okay? Here's the question. If one of them breaks the treaty, who's going to admonish him and put him back in his place? Because they're the two world superpowers. You know, you have, a, you have a wrestling match or you have a competition, you have a referee who can get in and say, you broke the rules, you know, you can get punished. In hockey, you can get thrown out for a minute. You know, you have a referee. Who's going to step in between the United States and Russia at that point in time when the two world superpowers say, hey, you can't do that, you broke the rules, go to your corner. Nobody could do that. It's even more so here when we are asked this question by Elihu when he says, when he says this very thing that we're talking about in chapter 36, when he says, who is going to tell him he's wrong? Verse 23. Who's assigned him his way or who has said, you've done wrong? Nobody's going to do that. Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Men look on it from afar. Behold, God is great. And here's that idea again of, of being so incredibly powerful and unique that, that we can't know him. Behold, God is great and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. Elihu admits that he's eternal. God is eternal. Nobody else is eternal. God is eternal. Eric read a psalm Wednesday night during the devotional time here, and I want us to turn there and look at the first three verses, Psalm 145, because in it, David will speak up. And David will again speak of the uniqueness, the unsearchability, that there is nobody else like God. Now, he doesn't use that exact phraseology, but look what he says in Psalm 145. I will extol you, O my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is, here's our word again, unsearchable. God's greatness is unsearchable. And that's not the first time we've seen that word. Matter of fact, it's been in most of the texts that we've read. The word unsearchable is defined as being beyond our understanding, 
past finding out cannot be searched out or cannot be comprehended. That is what the Hebrew word translated unsearchable means. Beyond our understanding, past finding out, cannot be searched out, cannot be comprehended. And we have seen some of these great heroes of the Old Testament who have talked about this unsearchableness of God because of his uniqueness, men like Isaiah and Job and David. And we have the similar Greek New Testament word used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11. Please turn there. Romans chapter 11. We're building this foundation one brick at a time. One text at a time. Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33. Romans 11, beginning at verse 33. Sounds like a song we sing, don't it? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who was first given to him, and it shall be who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You can't look at somebody else who is like God and say. And again, the Godhead I'm talking about, not Jesus as separate, but Jesus as part of the Godhead. You cannot look at some other creature or being and say, aha, he's God. Because God isn't like anyone. He's unsearchable. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul would once again talk about how he had been chosen to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I'm not going to turn there, but... In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's prayer in verses 14 through 21, you'll recall that prayer. I've preached on it before. Paul prays for the Christians there in the church of Christ in first century Ephesus. Christians, people baptized into Christ just like you and me. People that worship God just like you and me. Brothers and sisters in Christ. He prayed that they would somehow come to know what is the height and the width and the depth of the love of Christ that, here's our word, surpasses knowledge. He said, I want you to know so that you can be filled with the goodness of God. I want you to know that which you can't possibly know. I want you to experience that which you can't possibly fathom the depths of, that which is unsearchable about God. And, and Paul wasn't going to say, but if you think about, you know, this person over here, that's, what, that's exactly what, what you would see God being like in all of his fullness. He, he couldn't do that because there's nobody like him. As I said earlier, there's just nothing like God. And so, in the beginning, this unique and all-powerful, unlike anything the world would ever see outside of him, God, created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. He simply commanded, and they were created. Psalm 148 and verse 5. This would lead the divinely inspired author of Psalm 33, centuries later, to write these words in Psalm 33, verses 6 through 11. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. That's who he is. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. After what we've talked about tonight, even just if you only knew about God, what we've covered tonight, wouldn't it make you want to stand in awe of him and who he is? He says, let all the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it was done. I love this. The psalmist didn't say he spoke and it started to happen. That's not what he said. He didn't say he spoke and the process was almost finished. He didn't say he said he spoke and it, it was done. He continues. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Moses would speak of the uniqueness of God as well. When he said in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will not do it? Or has he spoken and will not make it good? I love that promise because in that promise, Moses is saying, look, if God told you he'd do it, it's going to be done. End of discussion. Don't you love that when it comes to your salvation? Where he said, if you repent and be baptized, if you walk in the light, that he'll take you home to heaven. Isn't that wonderful to know? God said it. That's the way it's going to be. There's no change in it. There's no messing with it. His word is forever eternally settled in heaven. He's not like us who says one thing one day and maybe even have the best of intentions of fulfilling. Have you ever told your kids, hey, look, you know, next week or tomorrow or whenever, mommy or daddy will do this. And then come that time and mommy and daddy, for whatever reason, can't do that. And you, know, you said, daddy, I remember you said you would. But sometimes we just don't. God didn't like that. God is not like anything. God's not like the rest of us beings he created. If God said it, he's going to do it. And that's the message, and I love that in Numbers 23. What's the point of all of this for tonight? Well, with everything we've looked at, that God is not like anything else, and there's nothing else like God. It makes absolutely perfect sense what one of the first commandments that this utterly unique, one and only, one of a kind, infinitely powerful God would lay down for his creation to follow. It makes perfect sense what it is. Turn to me to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Makes perfect sense. When you understand all that we've covered tonight, it has to be this way. Watch this. Exodus 19, beginning at verse 16. Came to pass on the third day in the morning, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. The sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. This wasn't one of those little tremors where you wake up in the middle of the night and say, did we just have a little earthquake? The mountain was doing this, like shaking, like shaking a pop bottle. 
and it quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up, hey, I got to tell, tell you, if I'm watching that mountain shake and I'm hearing the trumpet and I'm seeing all, it says God, and God says, hey, you, here, now, I am on my way. Tell us later on in retelling this in the book of Hebrews that Moses himself was terrified. Don't blame him. I would have been too. But then look what happens. Moses goes up, verse 25. Comes back down, verse 25. And he had a message for the people. He says, this is what God says. Chapter 20 and verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice the first commandment. Do, you'll have no other gods before me. And we kind of get that. We kind of understand that we shouldn't have any other gods. But, but as a part of that, God says, I don't want you to make some image of me because you have no idea who I am. There's nothing, we can't make an image that is like God because there's nothing like God. Whether it's, whether it's some animal or man with, with exaggerated human or bestial or animal uh, attributes, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, we can't make anything like God because there's nothing like God. And so God says, don't do it. Nothing in the earth, the heavens, nothing. Don't do it. I am God. Listen, if we make an image that is supposed to be God, and we use anything that we know in our heads, be it human, animal, geographic, and say, this is God, we've brought God down. We have minimized God into something that, that we think he is, hence the title of this sermon series, and man said, let us make God in our image. When we make God over into anything other than what the book says he is, it ain't God. We've dumbed him down. We've minimized him. We've made him something far less than he is because there's nothing like him. There's nothing we can make like God. So what's the first thing the people did? Exodus 32. When Moses went up on the mountain. Verse 1. People saw Moses delayed coming down to the mountain. People gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Go make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Moses said, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. They did it. He received the gold from them, verse 4, and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Do you begin to understand why God was so angry with those people? God, you're a cow. This cow is like you. 
This cow, each, no, no, there's nothing like God. You, you don't understand. Nothing even comes close. Nothing, nothing compares. God has no equal, no peer, no representative. No. Verse 6. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation, said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. They rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And you'll remember later on in the New Testament that many thousands of them died because of it. And the Lord said to Moses, go, get down for your people. God's not even claiming these people. For your people, he says to Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. And the Lord said, I have seen this people. They are a stiff-necked people. Leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I'll make of you a great nation. Why is God so upset? God's upset because the people had reduced him to a cow. The people had reduced him to what they believed in their own minds was God. To something they thought was like God, and, and there's nothing like God. As we, we could read on, we won't, in verses 11 through 14, where Moses intercessor, intercessorily prayed for them. But I want you to look at me in verse 19. So it was as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger became hot. He cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made them drink of it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? That phrase, so great a sin, th this is a big deal, okay? So great a sin. We want to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and homosexuality and all that God did to them and how that was a very grave sin, okay? And it was, but this is so great a sin. This is, this is at least equal to and, and probably, I believe, above and beyond that by far. The phrase, great sin, Two words. The phrase great sin occurs in the Bible four times. Okay? Not just sin, great sin. Four times. Okay? Three of those four times, three of them, people, three out of 75% of those four times that the phrase great sin is mentioned in the Bible is in connection to a golden calf being worshipped by people as God. Three out of four. And half of those four, two of them, are found in this very chapter. It seems as if man always has, and he still is today, as we'll get to, seeking to make the unique and infinite and unparable, unparalleled God of the universe over into the image of something they know, making him God over in their mind, into the image of something they know, whether physical or otherwise, and it always costs them. Look finally with me in verses 30 and following. He 
came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed, here comes our phrase, you have committed a great sin, not just a sin, a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. What a terrible cost to pay. But that's what you get when you create God in your own mind according to the things you know because God isn't like any of them. Now therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they had done with the calf. Next Sunday morning, I want to continue to trace the tragedy and the absurdity and the suicidal spiritual obsession that men seem to have with trying to remake God in their own image, in or, in, trying to refashion God into something they believe that he is in their own heads or their own minds. And, and hopefully you can kind of see where this is going. It has such implication for us today because, brethren, there may not be people making golden calves today, but there are people that by the millions, even in this country, that worship a God that they have created in their own minds that is not the God of the Bible. And it's important to understand that God has never tolerated that. God has never accepted that worship. God did not say to Moses, hey, they're worshiping me in the form of a golden calf. Go down there and join the party. That's not what he said. And when people today worship a God they've made in their minds rather than the God that we see in Scripture, God is just as unpleased. So next Sunday morning we will continue, as I said, to trace the, the suicidal spiritual obsession of man to always try to remake and bring down and, and dethrone and, and stuff the great and all-powerful God of the universe into some, something they've made up in their own minds. The only time that the great and eternal God of the universe, if I may use the, tech, the, the terminology, got stuffed into anything was when he did it himself. And he gave up some of himself and left him part of his glory in heaven, Philippians 2. And if I can use the phraseology, stuffed himself into human flesh, the word became flesh. He emptied himself of equality with God, did not consider it a thing to be grasped, and, and he stuffed himself into human flesh, became flesh, and, and dwelt among us. And, and that is the only time that, that God could be seen as represented by something we could picture. But that was still part of the Godhead. And the only reason he did that was because he loved and wanted to obey his Father, and because his Father loves you so much that he wanted your sins forgiven so you could be with him forever. Our God is an incredible God. He is unlike anything else in the universe. If you do not belong to him tonight by virtue of your having obeyed the gospel and been cleansed in his blood, son, what are you waiting for? If you understand that you're a sinner and you can't stand before God and you need your sins washed away, what on earth are you waiting for? 
That's what they knew on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Why are you waiting to be baptized? Arise and, and wash away your sins, calling on his name, Acts 22, 16. And if you've done that, but you need the prayers of the church because this life is a struggle and this life is often a struggle. We'll pray for you if you come forward and make your needs known. But I'll tell you who we're going to pray to. We're going to pray to God for you, the God who is unlike anything ever, anywhere else, ever. The God who is able, able to take care of you, no matter what your situation. If you have a need tonight, please come to the front while we stand and sing our praises.